Please, brothers and sisters, turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from Revelation chapter 14. So we'll be looking at verses 1 to 5. Revelation chapter 14 and verses 1 to 5. Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. Please then, hear with me the reading of God's inspired and inerrant Word. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God in the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. As far as a reading of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, because our Lord does not rule like an earthly monarch, people are deceived into believing that Either He does not exist, or if He does exist, that He is not one to be feared. But the fact that our Lord does not rule like an earthly monarch is a reason why He is to be most feared. Right? Unlike an earthly king with His kingdom, our Lord rules over all. Right? Unlike an earthly king's throne, our Lord's throne is in heaven, and there He reigns. Unlike an earthly king whose glory is but for a short time here on earth, the glory of the Lord, although most present in heaven, is everywhere and in every place. In addition, the power and the authority that earthly rulers wield isn't even theirs to have to begin with. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, that there is no power but that which comes from God. While earthly kings have authority over a specific population, the Lord's authority is sovereign. And all, not some, are subordinate to it. As earthly rulers struggle to keep their population under their power, the heavenly king has the power over all those that he rules and keeps them in subjection. Right? He makes all things serve His purposes. Right? Our Lord makes all things serve His ends and for His design, even when we don't know that it is occurring. He rules both heaven and earth. This is what we read in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Everything and everyone 
He created and He rules. Angels, kings, all peoples. He is the one who established thrones and kingdoms. He is the one who gives power and authority. It is by His will that all that is has been brought to be. He even rules over the sea. Earthly rulers care about great matters. They oftentimes give those lesser matters, those smaller matters, those seemingly insignificant matters to people beneath them to take care of. But let us see that the Lord of heaven and earth rules over all. He rules over great things and over small things. Even the sparrow does not move apart from our Lord. He rules over actions. He rules over events. He rules over disasters. He rules over suffering. Unlike earthly kings who need means to accomplish their will, our heavenly King does not need means to accomplish His purposes, but yet He makes use of them all to His glory. Right? He rules and orders everything, that which is good and that which is evil. Yet unlike earthly rulers who are guilty of perpetuating evil, and encouraging evil, and defending evil, and doing evil themselves, our Lord does no evil. But rather, what does He do with evil? He limits it. He bounds it. He restrains it. He puts constraints upon it. And eventually, He overturns it for His good purposes. Hell, in all of its inhabitants, all of those that we've been reading about who come forth from the bottomless pit recognize this. And this is why all of hell's inhabitants tremble and fear before the Lord. This is why that legion who came out of the man that you read about in the Gospels had to first ask permission to go into the swine. This is why the devil had to present himself before the Lord before he was able to sift Job. It is because the Lord has them all in chains. They must beg of the Lord. And still, the Lord rules perfectly. Right? There is no imperfection in the government of our Lord. Nothing gives Him trouble. He rules easily. Our Lord likewise rules continually as it never ceases. But the world does not see this take place. They do not see this take place. They, they only see what their earthly eyes allow them to see. And that which is, what they see is that which is put before them. And unfortunately, if it remains that way, it will be to their own demise and their own destruction. But these are the very things, brothers and sisters, that God, by His grace, has given us insight to within the book of Revelation. Right? Through these apocalyptic visions and through these pictures, showing to us what is, what was, and what will continue to transpire until the end of the age and Christ returns. Now, the last two weeks, we've been reading about Satan. And we've been reading about these two beasts. And we've been reading about how they are gathering this army to persecute the people of God throughout the church age. But let us see this today, that we read about another army. right? The army of the elect. One of the soldiers, one set of that army has been branded with the mark of the beast. But today, we read about the other army, those who have been, who have the name of God written upon their foreheads. 
At the last two weeks, we've seen a, a grim picture of how things are. But today, brothers and sisters, in our text, we see a glorious picture of how things shall be. Although the saints on earth are subject to suffering and evil, we can take comfort in the fact and rejoice in the fact that our Lord, that our King, that our ruler is not like earthly kings and rulers who persecute God's people. And in fact, all of them are ultimately subject to our Lord. And it is our Lord who, if He pleases, can make them bow down and all their knees and their hands and eat of the grass of the field like a beast if He desires, just as He did with Nebuchadnezzar. Right? This is He who stands on Mount Zion. And so we ought to, brothers and sisters, in light of our text, see that we ought to be most glad. Right? Reading our text today, it ought to arouse faithfulness to our Lord. Right? It ought to bring comfort, knowing not that our Lord will one day reign, but rather that He now reigns. And as He now reigns, He has a purpose for His people. Right? There is a purpose in everything that happens to God's people. Ultimately, that purpose is to bring about the completion of our salvation. Right? To bring about the completion of all of the elect, which we see in our text today, He accomplishes perfectly. He accomplishes it perfectly. And this leads us into our, our first point this morning that I want us to consider, which is the Lamb and the 144,000. The Lamb and the 144,000. Please, brothers and sisters, look with me at verse 1 once more. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, immediately, there are a few things that we need to see. The first is that there is a, a contrast being made between what we just finished reading last week and what we read this week. And that contrast is this. It is made between the true Lamb, right, that we read about here in verse 1, who is the one who is to be worshipped, the one to whom faithfulness is to be shown to, in opposition to what? The second beast or the false Lamb that we read about last week. Likewise, there's another distinction that is made here, although a more subtle distinction that we need to consider. And that is a distinction made between Satan and Christ. If you remember, at the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, we are told what about Satan? That Satan was standing. Satan was standing. Where was he standing? By the seashore. How is Christ portrayed in our text today in verse 1? We're told that Christ stood on Mount Zion. Here we have a contrast between the devil standing on the seashore and Christ the Lamb who stands on Mount Sinai. Zion, or excuse me, Mount Zion. Zion usually a reference to the city of God that He will establish and rule at the end of the age. And so it's this Lamb who stands not at the sea, which symbolizes chaos and rebellion and evil, as the devil does, as he gathers the beast and his army to persecute God's people in an attempt at world domination, but rather, it is the Lamb who stands on Mount Zion, right, the true city of God, 
for this is where His people will dwell in His midst safely after He defeats all the kingdoms of the world and brings to nothing all those nations that have raged against Him, demonstrating to all His worldwide sovereignty. In fact, brothers and sisters, Psalm 2 is set in the background of our text this morning. And so I'd ask you to please turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. And we will look at verses 6 to 12. Psalm 2 and verses 6 to 12. Here we read, we read this as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And so what we see there is that in the last days, God will place the Messiah and King on Zion. Or He will place Him on His holy mountain or His holy hill. And there the Messiah will judge the ungodly. And Zion will be a place of refuge for all who fear Him. And so what we need to see in our text is that Mount Zion spoken here in our text today is not, is not an earthly city where a small portion or a small remnant is going to go. But we need to see Mount Zion in our text here as the end-time city of God where He provides protection for the 144,000 who are the people of God who have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus from all over the earth. That's what we need to see. Now, Mount Zion in the Old Testament was where God sat enthroned in Israel's temple. But now what do we see? We see that Christ the Lamb is positioned there which shows that in light of His redemptive work, that He now sits on the throne with His Father and rules over all. The fact that His Father is mentioned with the Lamb here in verse 1 demonstrates that Christ is the only true heir to the Father's throne. And so what we have here in this first verse is really a picture of the triumphant and exalted Lamb as He stands on heavenly Zion. The fact that the 144,000 are, are singing, we're told with the four living creatures and with the elders, solidifies to us that this Zion being spoken about is not an earthly Zion, but a heavenly Zion. Because we've seen this picture before, haven't we? Remember Revelation chapter 4? when we were brought up into the throne room of God, what, what, what was occurring there? We were told that the four living creatures and the 24 elders were praising and worshiping God around the throne. And where was that occurring? In heaven. That was occurring in heaven. 
But now what do we see? Well, it's the 144,000 who accompany the heavenly chorus and heavenly Zion before the throne because this here is a picture of the end. Our text today is a picture of the end. And how do we know who these 144,000 are? Because they've been described for us already in chapter 7, haven't they? And we said what? That 144,000 made up the people of God, both Jew and Gentile. 144,000 being a symbolic number for the completeness of God's people or true Israel. And now just as Christ promised to those churches in those seven letters, we now see that every overcomer who had remained faithful to Christ and bore witness to His name has now been brought to the city of God and been made an immovable pillar in His temple forever. That is what we see here. The author to the Hebrews likewise tells us that Mount Zion is symbolic of heaven. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, we read this, But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. So what we see, brothers and sisters, is that the, the sealed saints of chapter 7 have now made it to their eternal abode. Right? That is what is being shown to us here. That those who have their names, the name of God written on their foreheads, have finally made it to glory with God. Why is this important? Right? Why does this matter? Why does this Why is this so important for us to understand and to see? Why was it important for the first century saints to see and understand this? Why is it important for us to see and understand this as well? Well, because, brothers and sisters, it's a reminder to us that although the devil and the beast and all of his allies seek to persecute the church and make you unfaithful to him through deceit and through violence, he, in the end, will fail. That is what it demonstrates to us. What do we see here? The 144,000 who make up the complete people of God in chapter 7 are the 144,000 who are now in heaven with the Lamb. It is not 143,999. It is not 144,001, but 144,000. That is what is depicted here for us. And so we have a, a picture of the eternal blessedness in heaven after the final judgment. And what do we find there? That not a single one of God's people is missing. Not a single one. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we needed the name of God to be written on our foreheads while yet we were still on earth. We needed that name so that we might be protected. Right? We were, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit as it designated God's ownership over us. The sealing of God upon His saints authenticated their profession of faith. It said that it was authentic and genuine. That sealing of the Holy Spirit empowered the Christian community to be able to persevere until the end. That sealing likewise right, affirmed that Christ is ours. And that He belongs to us just as we are His and we belong to Him. Right? It demonstrates to us then, seeing the 144,000 on Mount Zion with the Lamb, 
Right? That all that He died to redeem, all those that He shed His blood for, He will save in the end. And that one will go missing. That He will not forsake His people. That He will not suffer to lose one. And so see this. That apart from the divine name inscribed on your forehead, symbolically, you cannot enter heavenly Zion. We can think about it as that name written on our foreheads as kind of the membership card for all of those to enter into heavenly Zion. But also know this, that for those of you who have the inscription already placed upon your forehead, that you can never lose your place in heavenly Zion either. That's a, a great reality. A great reality. And so as we look at this very first verse, what a scene it is to behold, isn't it? That God accomplishes all that He has purposed to. That all of His promises have come to fruition and the church has made it home. And for those who enter heavenly Zion, then what are they found doing? Well, look with me at verses 2 and 3, please. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This leads us then to our, our second point this morning, which is the song of the 144,000. The song of the 144,000. Now, what is described here, we've seen before in the book of Revelation, haven't we? We've seen people playing harps and singing to God. Flip over to Revelation chapter 5 with me, please. Revelation chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 8. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, that is Christ... The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What do, what do they sing and pray for? What do the saints in our text today play and sing about? What are these songs about? It's, it's a response, aren't they? It was a response to the sacrifice of the Lamb, wasn't it? It was a response to purchasing God's elect by His very own blood. That's what chapter 5 was about. That's what today's text is about, we see. It is a response of the saints to the victory of the Lamb. It's a response of the saints to the victory of the Lamb over what? 
over the beast, over his image, over his number. Right? These, these saints in heaven are singing in a response to the victory of the Lamb over the devil and over the penalty of sin that Christ died to purchase for us. It is a song of the Lamb's worthiness, of His majesty. It's a song about His power and wisdom and authority and truthfulness and faithfulness accomplishing all that He has purposed to accomplish. It's a victory song because of the church's deliverance from our every enemy and seeing that it has finally come. This is why they sing. Now, we've said this many times before. And in fact, it was maybe a, a year, a year and a half ago, we had Pastor Michael Beatty come in from our sister church in North Dakota who preached a sermon on new song, didn't he? Some of you may have been there. And what he said and what we learned and what we know is that oftentimes in the Old Testament, uh, new songs that were sung are an expression right, of praise for God's victory over enemies, but also it's a song of praise because of the new mercies that we have now because of that deliverance. And so what we see here is that the saints in heaven sing this new song as they have been delivered from their every enemy and now have experienced these new mercies of being brought forth out of the world into their heavenly abode with Christ. And what will these 144,000 as they sing together in unison sound like? Where we're told it is like the sound of many waters in loud thunder. William Hendrickson says in his commentary in the book of Revelation in this text, he says, think of the mighty Niagara with the sound of an ever-increasing crescendo which reaches a thunderous roar when the waters strike the deep. That is what the new song is like. Yet although it will be majestic and sublime and constant, it will at the same time be the most lovely, sweet, and tender song you have ever heard, like harpers harping on their harps. Couldn't have said it better myself. Every week, the small group of us right, sing together before the Lord. And it is a beautiful thing. And it is a sweet-smelling aroma that arises to our Lord, which is well-pleasing in His sight. But consider for yourself what the sound will be when all of God's people sing together in unison. There's some of you here I know who have been to a Christian conference before. And if you've ever been to a Christian conference before, one of the things you always look forward to doing when you return is singing corporately with the people. Because at a Christian conference, when you go to a Ligonier conference or a Founders conference or a Shepherds conference, what you find is you have three, four, five thousand Saints singing together, voices bellowing up to the rafters. And it is such a sweet reminder and a heavenly foretaste of what we will experience in glory with the Lord. I tell you, it is, as someone who has experienced it myself, it is not something that you will forget. It is something that you carry with you and that you remember and that you reflect upon throughout the course of your life. But also, I want us to see this, that Nobody could sing the song except for the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. 
Right? No one could learn that song. What does that imply? If you're going to learn something, what do you need? You need a teacher, don't you? So let us see this, that it is God who is the teacher. That it is the course that He is teaching is Christ and His redemption. And it is those who learn of it, who know Christ and have experienced the graces of His salvation by the work of the Spirit and who firsthand know the heavenly comforts that it affords the saints here on earth. But let us see that no one can sneak into the course. God is the teacher of it, and so He must admit you in. This is the same thing Jesus tells us in John's Gospel that John records for us in John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. There Jesus says this, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the Prophets, All will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. Brothers and sisters, the only way to enter into heavenly Zion and join in the heavenly chorus is to know the Son, Jesus Christ. This is why Paul, as he goes about preaching, what does he say? I preach Christ and Christ crucified. Because Paul knows that it is Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one goes to the Father but by Him. Jesus Himself says later in John chapter 6 to the Pharisees, He says to them, I am the bread of life. If you remember, He tells them, your fathers ate of the manna in the wilderness, and yet they died. But He was contrasting Himself, the true bread of life, with the bread in which they ate. Saying that He is not like that bread that they ate in the wilderness. Because He said what? That whoever feeds on Me shall never die, but will live forever. But brothers and sisters, let us see this, that you cannot share in that heavenly manna. You cannot be numbered amongst the 144,000. You cannot be a part of that heavenly chorus through spirituality, through man-made religion, through good works. Right? But rather, you will only ever taste of this true and living bread who is Christ if Christ has died for you and if the Father has granted to you faith in the Son. And so if you wish to share in the heavenly course, I call upon you this day to look to the name of the Son. Right? Place your faith, your hope, and your trust in Christ Jesus. And so the question for all of you today then is, do you know Him? Right? Have you come to Him by faith, setting aside your own righteousness in exchange for His righteousness? Seeing the, the depths of your own depravity and your need for Him? Right? If you have, then you can look forward to sharing in that thunderous chorus that sings in unison to the Lamb in glory in response to His mercy and bringing the people of God out from this wilderness of the world to our heavenly living place, to our heavenly place with the Lord. Now what John goes on further to describe in the final two verses is then the character of those who join together and make up this heavenly chorus. And this leads us then to our third and our final point this morning, which is the character of the 144,000. The character of the 144,000. 
Please then look with me at verses 4 and 5. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now what I want us to take note of is that there is really a threefold description of the character of the 144,000. And each one of the descriptions or characterizations is introduced by the word these. We see that these referring back to the complete people of God. And so first, what do we see? That they are these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now this phrase has caused some who take a, a literal view of the text to interpret this as being a, a literal 144,000 celibate men. Okay? But a cue to us from our text that ought to caution us from this interpretation and direct our attention to another view is the fact that the 144,000 are described as not defiling themselves with women for they are virgins. And so we know that this literal interpretation can't be correct because God has given to us the institution of marriage. Right? He has given it to us as a good thing for the purpose of what? Keeping us undefiled. So that to not be a virgin doesn't mean that you're defiled. You could be in a marriage covenant and be undefiled, can't you? The author to the Hebrews says this. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So, to be defiled, or to defile oneself, is to be what? Adulterous. Now, take this into the context of our text today. What's going on? Right? We just seen last week and then we see this week that there are two marks, aren't there? There's the mark of the beast and all who receive it serve him. And there is the name written on the head of God's people who serve Christ. Who are those that serve Christ? What are they referred to as? The bride of Christ, aren't they? The bride of Christ. So that what we need to see is that the character of the saints is that they do not become defiled by adulterating themselves with the world. right? By not running after that prostitute Babylon that we will read about later in the book of Revelation, but staying faithful to their one and only husband who is Christ. right? It is they who are virgins. Virgins symbolic of what? Purity. And so, who is the 144,000 being described as? Right? Pure and faithful virgins. A, a pure and faithful bride betrothed to their beloved. And this same type of language was used about Israel in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 13, we read this, Therefore, says the Lord, ask among the nations, Who has heard the like of this? The virgin Israel has done a very horrible thing. They are the the people, are called a 
are called the virgin Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 30, we read this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and go what? And go whoring after detestable things. Do you not see that idolatry is seen as harlotry or adultery throughout the Old Testament? This is what Israel's can constantly being accused of, aren't they? Of playing the harlot by running after and adulterating themselves with pagan deities and, and pagan nations. Even further, we, we learn of this through Paul's own words in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Paul says this, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to do what? To present you, people of God, as what? A pure virgin to Christ. And so we see what this is talking about. It's not a special small select group of celibate men who do not commingle with women, but rather what it is talking about is the character of the church that does not defile itself with the impurity of the world, not adulterating themselves with the prostitute Babylon. And to the saints in the first century then, to not defile themselves with women is to not participate in emperor worship. It was to not participate in those pagan trade guild festivals where sexual immorality and idolatry were occurring. But rather, it was to remain faithful to the Lord. Remain faithful to the witness in the midst of it all. Right? This is the character of the virgin that John is describing. Today, to not defile yourself with the woman is to not worship culture. To not go along with the thinking and the practice of this world but rather remain faithful to Christ. In addition, then, the second thing that we see is that the 144,000 are these who follow the Lamb wheresoever He goes. This builds on what we just read, didn't it? Doesn't it? Instead of following after the world, we are to, as a pure bride, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Right? Instead of committing adultery, following others, the people of God are characterized by following Christ. And this language ought to cause us immediately to think back to what Jesus says about those who wish to be His disciples. Right? Remember in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, what does Jesus say? If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Follow Me. Follow Him where? Follow Him where? The point is, follow Him wherever He leads you. Follow Him wherever He leads you. Right? Christ as a Lamb came down and He sacrificed Himself for us. And now, brothers and sisters, we are called to sacrifice ourselves for Him. Right? To give up our living our lives for ourselves and commit ourselves to living our life for Him. So that to follow the Lamb wherever He shall go means to not try to come to terms with Christ and say, I will only follow you this far. Or I will follow you here and there, but not over there. Right? But to follow the Lamb wherever He will go means that we must be like Him. 
In every way, we must follow Him in doctrine. We must follow Him in practice. We must follow Him in obedience to the will of God. We must follow Him in hating sin. We must follow Him in how He dealt with temptation. We must follow Him in our prayer life. We must follow Him in how we glorify God. We must follow Him when we go off to work. We must follow Him when you go off to school. We must follow Him in our homes. We must follow Him at church. We must follow Him in the presence of the godly. And we must follow Him in the presence of the ungodly. We must follow Him to whatever city or state or country He bids us to go. And we must follow Him whether it means freedom or imprisonment or even death. Because ultimately, brothers and sisters, all of the 144,000 as we see in our text today will all follow Him to glory. That's what we see. They all will follow Him to glory. Also, realize this then. By implication, what does it tell us? If we're to follow the Lamb, wherever He shall go, it means that we should not follow strangers then, right? We teach our kids that very young, don't we? Don't, don't go with strangers. Don't follow strangers. As adults, as parents, do we heed that same advice? Do we follow after strange voices? Do we follow strange doctrine? Do we follow strange practices? Do we follow those who try to teach us strange obedience? Then, these finally we are told are those who have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits of God from all mankind. And in their mouth was no lie found, for they are blameless. Now, first fruits had to do with sacrifice in the Old Testament, didn't they? Uh, in fact, if you recall our reading through the law in the book of Leviticus some months back, right, we read oftentimes about the first fruits, didn't we? And first fruits were brought to the Lord and offered as a sacrifice to show what? That these belong to Him as opposed to all the other common harvest that was out there. Right? These were the first fruits and they were dedicated to the Lord. Now in the New Testament, what we find is that first fruits has many connotations. It has multiple and different meanings. And so here what I want us to see is I, I believe that it alludes to when it talks about the, the first fruits, what it's talking about is the totality of all believers who have been purchased by Christ and who now have received their inheritance. Right? That is who the first fruits are here. And why do I say that? That's who the 144 represent. They represent all believers. And so it makes sense to understand the first fruits here as the whole people of God. Likewise, the language is used that way elsewhere. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 3, and speaking of the whole nation of Israel, they are called by God the first fruits of the harvest, which in context meant in distinction from all the other nations of the world. And so what I want us to see in our text is it's being used the same way here, that all believers are the first fruits in distinction from the unbelieving nations that God has judged. Likewise, what are we told? They are characterized by having no lie in their mouth and they are blameless. Right? What we need to see here is that what's in mind is that as they're being persecuted, right, there's no lie in their mouth. Right? They haven't been deceived by the lie of the world, but they continue to proclaim the truth. They continue to maintain their faithful witness to Christ. Right? They remain faithful to Christ who we're told in 
Isaiah 53.9 likewise said, no deceit in his mouth. And so what do we see about the character of God's people? Right? That as they follow the Lamb, wherever He goes, they, they take upon themselves the attributes of the Lamb, don't they? Right? He, there's no lie uh, to be found in His mouth. No deceit. Right? In God's people, likewise, it is true of them. We likewise also see that they are characterized as not being blameless. Or excuse me, as being blameless. Right? The Lamb was blameless how? With respect to any accusation that was brought against Him. And so too, this is what we need to see about the saints. That we are blameless. Not with respect to absolute moral perfection, but with respect to the fact that nobody can lay a charge against God's people. And so as we close then this morning, brothers and sisters, what I want us to see as we look at the character of God's people is this very important fact that I want each and every one of you to take with you this morning, and it is this. Whatever you will be in heaven, you must first begin to be on earth. Whatever you will be in heaven, you must first begin to be on earth. Right? No one enters the kingdom of God who has not first been born again. Right? No one enters the kingdom of God who has not been transformed by the work of God. Right? No one will sing the praises of God for their redemption who haven't experienced the joys of their salvation on earth. Right? Those who will be with Christ in heaven follow Christ now on earth. For they have been sealed. They have genuine saving faith. And now they begin to take on the character of the Lamb. Do you? Do you take on the character of the Lamb? Do you follow the Lamb wherever He goes? You know, we live in a day and age that people despise being told that they have to follow someone. Right? They want to forge their own path in this world, but not the Christian. Right? For the Christian, the path has already been forged. Right? The path has already been laid. It has already been set. Christ walked that path perfectly and now calls us to follow Him. Let us rejoice that we have been given the Lamb to follow. For in following His path on earth, He keeps us. And He refreshes us. And He teaches us. And He protects us. And He blesses us. And although right now Christ is in heaven, let us remember this, that as He is in heaven, His heart is for His people on earth. And there is coming a day again when He will return to gather all of us together to sing a new song of praise to God before the throne on Mount Zion. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, how true and trustworthy it is. We thank You for the Lamb who stands on Mount Zion. We thank You, Father, that You have uh, numbered and marked out a people from Your own good pleasure to save and that we see in our text today that You will do and accomplish that very thing. How consoling that is to the weary souls of the saints here on earth. We pray, Lord, that You would strengthen our faith this day as we have read Your Word. We ask, Lord, that You would, that you would make the, the Word today that we have read a, a reality to our hearts. And that, Lord, all that we have read, as we consider the character of the people of God, the character of the 144,000, 
Lord, that you would help to continue to shape us and mold us and fashion us into that character. And that by your Holy Spirit, you would help to lead us in following the Lamb wheresoever he shall go. It's in Jesus' name we now pray. Amen.